0: All right, I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9 this morning, Romans chapter 9, returning to the book of Romans. We've been dividing the book of Romans up into a few, uh, few different series because I think the book is themed that way. And this particular one, Romans chapter 9, 11, presenting some of the characteristics of God's greatness, um, honestly, this morning is a challenging passage um, Some of you will remember the story, you may have read it, Uh, some of you may have back in the day seen the Disney one with Haley Mills, it was called Pollyanna, and Pollyanna was a young girl, Uh, she was talking with her pastor one time, and her pastor was this guy that tended every sermon to work himself up into a lather of fury and would preach on hellfire, brimstone, depravity, week after week after week after week. And he wasn't really having a good time. The church wasn't having a good time. And so uh, they happened to have a conversation out in the field one day, and she was talking about her dad. And her dad had been a pastor, and he had passed away. And she said, but my dad came to the conclusion that he would preach on the happy texts. And she talked about 70-something happy texts, I think it was, I don't remember how many there were, but... But they were basically all texts on the promises of God and, and the expression of God's encouragement to people. And it's fun to preach on the happy texts. Romans 8 is one of those. Romans 9 is a more challenging text because not everything in the Bible is easy to grasp because not everything about God is easy for us to understand. Romans 9 stretches us, because God is presenting things about himself that stretch us. And I'd like to read verses 1 through 21, and if you're listening, you'll see some stretching statements that are found here in Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I'll return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Some tough things in there. Let's pray. Lord, we want to worship you and love you as you are. And... We recognize, Lord, that there are things in the Scripture that You have placed because there is stretching to be done in our understanding and in our acceptance of You. Lord, I recognize that this passage is, for some, maybe a delight. For others, it is going to be a challenge. For some, it might be a torment. And I just ask that you would uh, speak into our lives in a way that deepens our love for you, our desire for you, uh, our commitment to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Even the location of Romans 9 through 11 is somewhat confusing If you look at the book of Romans, here's the outline of the book. Romans chapter 1 through 8 talks about how we are made acceptable to God and how we can live a new way because of it. Chapter 12 talks about what that new way looks like. It just makes total sense to end chapter 8 and start chapter 12, right? But then he throws in Romans 9 through 11. And Romans 9 through 11 seem to be an embarking on a whole different uh, set of truths. And this has led many commentators to use the the expression that Romans 9 through 11 are a parenthesis uh, that Paul sort of digresses to and then comes back to his argument uh, in Romans chapter 12 because he starts in Romans chapter 12, therefore, and a lot of people think that therefore is tying back to the end of chapter 8. I think what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 9 is addressing the whatabouts whenever I speak to young guys, uh, preachers that are looking to go into preaching, I, I always talk about the whatabouts. I said, to me, real preaching is when you are, are presenting a message and people are invariably raising in their minds, what about, what about? And I said, the more that they sense that you have already Raise those whatabouts to yourself. Sometimes you'll stop and say, I know some of you are thinking this right now, or, or, or this may be a question to you. Others that you don't even address, but they just sense that you have been with them in the whatabout. The more they'll have confidence that you have really wrestled through the passage in the way they are now trying to wrestle through as they listen to you. I think that's exactly what Paul's doing. I think at the end of chapter 8, he realizes there's a bunch of whatabouts out there. And he's going to tackle some of those babies. Now, the main reason that there are whatabouts in what he says in chapters 1 through 8 is because of the constituency of the Roman churches. He's writing to these churches, and there is two groups. There are two groups of people in the church. Number one are the, the Romans themselves whose background uh, we would call pagan, meaning that it was not steeped in the, in the, uh, the view of God where there is one divine being. Uh, paganism tended to be a, a pluralistic, a polytheistic, guy, like the pantheon. And, and they'd never heard of the Old Testament in their background. They didn't know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Noah, Daniel, David. I mean, these were people they didn't know. They hadn't heard of these people. And... and So the whole concept of covenants and and the Ten Commandments and and God calling a people through His chosen servant Abraham was alien to them. That was not their world. And they came to faith in Jesus Christ and now they were beginning to get a little of this. But then there was another group of people in the church and these were former Jews. These were Jewish Christians. These were people whose whole lives had been steeped in a perspective of a monotheistic one God who was the creator God and, and who had drawn a man named Abraham to himself and called out a people uh, through whom he was going to bring the promised Messiah. And to them, when they hear of people believing in Jesus Christ as Savior, they know that the term Christ was not just Jesus' last name. It was talking about Jesus the Christ Christ The word literally was the the translation of the word Messiah, the anointed one, and he's their Christ, their Messiah. But they're confused because these Jewish Christians recognize that in the Roman Empire, the overwhelming majority of Jews have not embraced Jesus as the Christ Christ that they have not imbibed this truth. And at the same time, thousands upon thousands of the goyim, which means nations, uh, it's talking about everybody outside of Israel, are embracing their Christ, their Messiah. And it's confusing to them. And Paul writes this letter about salvation in Christ, growth in Christ, living your life with Christ. But it's their Christ. It's their Messiah. It, it, he's of their lineage. And it has raised some real questions for them. There are whatabouts, and these whatabouts are primarily related to Jewish people feeling slighted and cast aside in Paul's theology. After all, Paul has said in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the gospel is for the Jew first. If it is, why are so few of the Jews buying into Christ? Why aren't they the first to accept him? Why has God seemingly left the Jews and now seemingly devoted his grace and mercy to the pagan nations? After centuries of waiting for the Messiah, how could the privileged people of God fail to recognize him? How can their unresponsiveness be reconciled with God's covenants and promises to them. Romans chapter 9 through 11 is Paul's vindication of God's purposes and promises. And really, it focuses on these things. Israel's fall, he presents this this, uh, passage on God's sovereign mercy. He's going to talk in chapter 10 about it was Israel's fault and God's sorrow over their rebellion. In chapter 11, he'll say there is a future and and God's long-term design. And then the doxology that closes the section, God's wisdom and generosity. Now, you may be here and your response may be, well, that's cool, that's interesting, but I'm not Jewish and I don't care. I don't want to spend three chapters, which is like four sermons, when I'm not Jewish. So here's my response This sounds like these chapters are about Israel. They're really about God, they are about the character and the greatness and the nature of God. And this sermon in particular is going is to force us to process or interact with some stuff. That is stretching us in our view of God. So, what I'd like to do this morning is do what Paul does. In the first half of the chapter, he talks about how does a person gain God's mercy as a way of answering the question of the Jews. And then he's going to raise some objections. How does a person gain God's mercy in Romans 9? Well, Paul, first of all, it is not gained by birth and position. In verses 1 through 3, Paul starts by saying, look, I want you to know I care about the Jews. I want you to know how much I care. And he presents that. We're going to come back to that at the very end of our message. But beginning in verse 4, he starts talking. In verses 4 through 9, he talks about the privileged position that Israel has had. And he says, you're right. They're the ones that were adopted as sons. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, when God's addressing Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, here's the words he uses. He said, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. They're the ones that have the divine glory. No other people had the Shekinah glory, this pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. No other people followed that around in the wilderness and were being directed through for 40 years. Israel did. No one else had the covenants or the law, or the temple, or as he says in verse 5, the human ancestry of Jesus Christ. He said it's all true. All of those things have been true, but most of the, of the Jews have not turned to the promised Messiah. And they're struggling, and they're saying, we, how could we have missed the pivotal moment in our history as God's people? And Paul says, it, it's all true. You have been given all these things, and you, most Jews, at least to this point, have missed this pivotal moment of the Messiah actually coming. But he says this in the beginning of verse 6, but God, that does not mean that God's promise has failed. For not all who descended from Israel are Israel. And he says it is not the natural children who are God's children. He said, you need to understand that everybody that's an Israelite is not the recipient of the promise in in the same way. Because he says, those that inherit the promise of salvation are those that turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And he says, True Israel, our heart Israelites, our spiritual Israelites are those, he even says in, in other parts of the New Testament, that, that those that have embraced Christ as Savior as Gentiles are actually a part of the true Israel in the sense that he's using it here. So he says it is, it is not, God's people are not the descendants of Israel who are biologically related to him ultimately. It is those whose hearts are turned toward God he says it's also, it, it's, it's not been gained by works, beginning at verse nine, at verse 10. He says, not only that, I got another thing for you. I want to tell you the story of Jacob and Esau. You remember these two brothers, and here was Abraham, and then he had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac had two boys, and they were born at the same time, Jacob and Esau. Esau was first, and just like Isaac was the son of promise, the, the first son of, uh, the son of, of Abraham and, and his wife, Sarah, um, so these boys were born to the second patriarch, Isaac. And it should have been Esau, seemingly, because he was the firstborn. He was the oldest, but he didn't get the blessing. He didn't get the position. Why? And he says, well, it wasn't because of anything that Jacob did. There was nothing special in him. He says, it was by God's grace here's what he says in verses 10 through 12 not only that but rebecca's children that's isaac and rebecca had one and the same father our father isaac yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that god's purpose and election might stand not by works but by him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger it was god that made the difference not their works and he says it this way he says the issue was settled before the twins were born that the choice was not made based on what God knew the boys would do before the twins had done anything good or bad. The blessing comes not by works, but by him who calls. And the only difference between Jacob and Esau is found in God's purpose in election. Now, God's going to pick that up in verse 15, where he says another thing about God's choosing grace. It is not by people's choice. In verse 15, he says, for... For God said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And you begin to get involved in this conversation, and you're thinking, wow, wait a minute. And then you get to the final statement. He summarizes it in verse 17 and 18, alludes to it in verse 13 and 15. For it is gained by God's sovereign choice. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy in whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So here's Paul's response to the Jews in the church. And he says, Guys, you think your salvation as a nation was because there's something special in you? It was grace, it's always been grace. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says, the nation of Israel says, not because you're more numerous than other people, it's not because you're special. It's just, I chose you because I chose you. I loved you because I loved you. And what Paul is now saying here in this, in this passage is this. Whether you're Roman or you're Greek or you're Egyptian or you're Israelite, if you experience salvation, it is by faith. And that faith is a gift of grace which God chose to give you before you were born. So we stop for pregnant pause and hope nobody has rocks. And Paul does the exact same thing. He sends this mouthful out and then he says, okay, I know there's a lot of whatabouts out there right now so I'd like to track with him as we look at verse 14 and following but before we do so I just want to acknowledge a reality and that reality is that this is an emotional issue and it is a confusing issue potentially and if you have never heard and never read Romans 9 before you are undoubtedly having one of the following responses. Maybe the first one. <laughs> Actually, I don't think there are many of those. Um, I would say almost no one responds with joy to this doctrine of what's being presented in Romans 9 initially. God says, I'll have mercy and who will have mercy. I'll have compassion on who will have compassion. I hardened Pharaoh, I didn't harden others. So, I would suggest it's probably likely that that isn't a main option in the room on a first read of Romans 9. But I would guess one of these three is. The next one would be this individual. And maybe you're out there and you're saying, Pastor Mark, I'm trying really hard to track with you on this. But this raises a ton of questions for me. I thought I liked you, Pastor Mark. I wanted to trust you. I'm beginning to have doubts. Another response might be this one Mark, why are we doing this? I came to church to get encouraged and supported. I don't need this kind of mind bending theological reflection. This whole subject makes me uncomfortable. Why don't we just skip this chapter and get to the cool stuff in the chapters after that? I would guess there are more of those, than, and, and probably by the end of the sermon, <laughs> that will have increased. And I would guarantee there are people like this one. And you would want to say, what's your problem, man? Why would a God who... Why would, who would want a God who chooses some people for heaven and not others? What kind of a God are you trying to feed me? Now, because... Paul knew that he had many of those same people sitting in the Roman churches. He raises some of the whatabouts, and I'd like to just look at them with him, and I'll say right at the beginning, we are not going to hit all your whatabouts today, but hopefully we'll give some seeds on some. The first objection he talks about in verse 14, is God fair if he elects some people to believe and not others he said is God just is the question I mean this doesn't sound just to me Paul answers the question with an appeal to an Old Testament encounter in Exodus 33 Moses begs God to not leave the people even though the people have rejected him and and to actually come among them in a unique way and he says will you show me your glory show me who you who you are show me what really makes you God and in Exodus 33 God responds here's what we read in Exodus 33 then Moses said now show me your glory and the Lord said I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name the Lord in your presence I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion But you can't see my face, for no one may see me and live. And that is the passage, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That is the passage that Moses is quoting here in Romans chapter 9. And what Paul is saying is this aspect of God, where he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, I'll is at the very core of God's character. Because when Moses asked God, God, show me who you really are, God says, I'm the God who shows mercy on whom I'll have mercy and shows compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And Paul says, we've got to wrestle with this because this is a a self-identifying response of God. Now, it's hard for us because at first they sound like the words of an arbitrary bully. And so we respond like the the listeners of Romans originally. God's not being just. I mean, that doesn't seem fair. Paul says at the very core of God is mercy. But it is mercy that is extended at his discretion And this is not a question of God being just or fair. That's not the issue. Mercy, by its very definition, cannot be an obligation. It is not an obligation because mercy is a gift. To say that God's extension of mercy is unfair is to say that it is owed. And if it is owed, it is not mercy. It is mercy, freely given, undeservedly received. If a lady, uh, a wealthy woman, uh, her heart is drawn to an inner city area and she gets to know some of the people there and and their lives and the plight of their lives and looks at the young people and she says, you know, I have been blessed with, with money and resources and she says, I'm going to invest a significant portion of my resources into 20 young people. And she takes 20 of these kids and she, and she pays for their college and their education as far as they want to go. She sets them up and, and she, she works with them and she invests an incredible amount of money. And then somebody came along and said, wait a minute, she still has money. Why 20? Why not 24? Why not 35? Why not all of them or that she completely empty all of her resources to do it that's not fair and we would say well she's being merciful to i mean that she is giving that money to any to 20 is astonishing it's beautiful The issue would not be fairness. Now, it might even be that somebody's so worked up about this, they might say, you know, it'd be better if she didn't give it to anybody than if she gave it to 20. And of course, our response would be, doesn't feel that way to to the 20. Paul is here saying the issue is not fairness. When we talk about mercy, mercy is what it is, it's freely given, undeservedly given. And he's not just talking to young people in an inner city who are caught in their situation, often through no fault of their own. He's talking to hardened criminals, to sinners, to rebels. And he says the issue is not fairness. Fairness is to give them the earned eternity apart from God. Justice would be experiencing that. The issue is not fairness. Because God does not owe, I could ask the question, does God owe anyone salvation? I think we would all say no, he doesn't owe it. If God owes no one salvation, he is free then to give it to all, to some, or to none. Now I understand That in making that statement, which I think is just tracking Paul's argument, I didn't turn all you into now happy face about Romans 9. There's other issues, there's other questions that you're asking, but I'm just trying to say the argument of fairness is not the the right playing field to deal with here. Mercy is not owed. And if he chooses to give to whom he chooses to give, it is still mercy. The second thing he raises is another objection in verse 19. And he raises it after verse 17 and 18. I want to read those again because we'll understand why it was raised. Here's the, question. Here's the deal. He says in verse 17, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you, probably more than one, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Makes total sense, right? I mean, if God's controlling all this, why is anybody blamed if they don't believe? I mean, poor Pharaoh. God hardened his heart. But I want you to understand exactly what the Bible says about that scenario because it's very important. In Exodus chapter 4 through 10, chapters 4 through 10, it says six times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It also says six times that Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, we may think what this is saying is that, you know, Pharaoh was a lovely man, generous to the alien and stranger. And until God came and turned his heart cold and miserable, he would have been a benevolent, compassionate friend of the friendless. But that's not what the scripture shows us. The scripture shows Pharaoh as a ruler who was threatened by the Israelites. And as a result, he enslaved them. And and, and then, because that didn't wipe out enough of them, he tried by infanticide to kill all their children, their, their babies. When it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's talking about exactly what it says in Romans chapter 1 when it says that God turned people over to their own desires. He just took his hands off. God took his hands off of Pharaoh. God did not restrain Pharaoh's inclinations. God did not show that kind of mercy to Pharaoh. He allowed him to track as he chose to track. He gave him over to his own stubbornness. Pharaoh resisted God, and God allowed that position to be reinforced. He gave him what he chose. This is the picture of salvation. That God says a person has to believe by faith. But he says, I will be the one that enabled them to believe by faith. I think that's the argument of Romans 9. John Stott says it this way. If anybody's lost, the blame is theirs. But if anyone is saved, the credit is God. This antinomy Contains a mystery which our present knowledge can't solve, but it is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. God doesn't create the hardness. God hardens those who want to be hardened by letting them continue in their hardened state. And all those he does that with want to be hardened. The third objection is shouldn't God be understandable to us? Because this is not... This seems counterintuitive to us. And Paul says fairly starkly in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what his form say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? there comes a place of if we, embrace what he, if we embrace the truth of Romans 9 and imbibe it, that we're just going to say, God, I don't understand all this. I don't know that this is how I would run things. But you are God. And the fact that you express mercy to anyone is fathomless. And the fact that you enable any to believe, not only did you provide Christ, but you also provide the faith to believe in Christ, if, if, if that's really true, I, I, I bow the knee, even in my lack of total perception. And then there's a fourth objection, and to me this is the one that is most practical and was the most challenging for me. Doesn't this take away any incentive to pray for or witness to people? If, if God is the one that is going to enable people to believe, and we believe salvation is by faith, Ephesians 2:8 and 9 seems to say this, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it, the faith, is of gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast, if it is from start, if it is that I have to have faith in Christ for my salvation, and even that faith is a sovereignly disposed gift, then it really is from start to finish. Salvation is of God. And if that's really true, why do we pray? Why, why would we pray? Do, should we pray? That was a real struggle I had. And, and my guess is many have. And I would just point out Paul's experience. Because Paul, because it's going can sound like it's not going to make you want to even pray. You just feel like it, it, there's no role in prayer. Look at Paul's response in their bookend, this whole section, Romans 9. Beginning of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 10. Bookend this whole treatise we're looking at. And here's what it says in Romans 9 and Romans 10. Romans 9 verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience conforms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He says, I am heartsick that more have not embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior yet. He says, as a matter of fact, my passion is so deep for them that I wish that I were cursed in their place. And the word cursed here is the word that literally means, it is the word anathema in the Greek. It literally means put under the ban. In the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were were told to destroy a city and and they said it was under the ban, it's an actual specific word that was used, it meant everything in it is to be destroyed. And Paul says, I would be willing to be under the ban eternally. Separated from God, I would be willing to be. I care so much. And you would think Paul would be saying, but there's nothing I can do. I mean, it's all of grace. It's all of sovereign call. I mean, what, what, what can I do about it? And then we read verse 1 of Romans 10. He says this, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul constantly is shown in the Scripture as praying for people. Now, how do you put those together? I would say, but let me me conclude with this. I've acknowledged, sorry, I lost my train of thought. There are two things in the Scripture that Paul says he did did without ceasing. They're the only two. One of those is found in verse 2 of Romans 9. All the time he grieved and sorrowed. He says, I do it without ceasing. The other thing, He says, I pray without ceasing. He says, I'm not just on the sidelines about people that have not embraced Jesus as Savior. As a matter of fact, I'm energized by Romans 9 to pray. And that's what I'd like to conclude with this. I've talked about the teaching of Romans 9 being a hard teaching to understand and to accept. And I understand the emojis, and I understand the genuine emotional responses. So I'd like to just say what for my own life have been two practical benefits of this doctrine in my own life. One has been confidence in prayer. I realized when I was early in ministry, and I would pray for lost people all the time, but I remember how I would pray, because I was trying to pray integritously, that I would pray that God would bring them to the place where they would come to see their need of Jesus and that then they would choose the right thing. That would be up to them, but that they would choose the right thing. And I would pray up to that place that God would work circumstantially. I still pray that, but I've changed the way I pray. Now I pray, God. Save them. Because I believe God lays specific people on our hearts. I believe he sees their need. I, I believe he knows who, 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 who he has enabled to respond by faith, and he lays on their, our hearts. And I pray God save them. I believe salvation from beginning to end. I believe the faith is going to have to come by your grace. As Mike said before, it's not that we're going to run after God. He's running after us that he is pursuing us, so God, pursue them. Do the work that you always have to do in bringing one of your children home. God, save them. It gives me confidence in prayer. When I really feel God has laid, and there are certain individuals in my life he has deeply laid on my heart to be saved, I really believe they're going to be saved. The second thing, it has given me hope in my life. In the darkest seasons of my my adulthood, in the times when I have been most aware of my own flaws, my failures, my misses as as a person, my insufficiencies, when I have been in the darkest place in myself, invariably God has reminded me or I've actually, he's reminded me, and i to remind him, I can, a number of times I've taken walks, and I've just said, Lord, you wanted me. You chose me. You brought me. I'm not here. I don't know you because I, I'm, I'm, I'm better, or I got it, where other people didn't get it, or I was, I was more meritorious. You wanted me. You pursued me. I was one of the 20. I don't know why. But in those moments of self-flagellation of myself, this doctrine has been precious to me. That by grace, from start to finish, I stand as His Son. Destined for glory. Destined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But not because I had enough of an insight into the gospel that I got it. It's that He got me. I want to pray together. Let's pray. Lord, I love to preach the happy texts. And I really feel the weight of Romans 9. I confess, well, you know, I've dreaded getting to this passage because I know it's heavy, I know it's confusing. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would speak into lives truth in your own way, in your own time. That you would take the things this morning that people really need to wrestle through and embrace or to allow things that this is not the time to wrestling with this And to just let that be put aside. But Lord, use this time to deepen all of our desire to know you, to love you and be loved by you, I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.